Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's episode is an exploration of the creative process and how organizations can clear the way for innovation. In many organizations, creative individuals face stubborn resistance to new ideas. Managers and executives oftentimes reject innovation and unconventional approaches due to misplaced allegiance to the status quo. Questioning established practices or challenging prevailing sentiments is frequently met with stiff resistance. In this climate of stifled creativity and inflexible adherence to conventional wisdom, potentially game-changing ideas are dismissed outright. Senior leaders claim to value creativity, yet often lack the knowledge to provide a creative framework. Today's episode explores some effective methods and real-world examples of how the most successful organizations create cultures of innovation and experimentation. We welcome author of Unlocking Creativity, how to solve any problem and make the best decisions by shifting creative mindsets. Michael Roberto, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's great to be with you today. It's great to have you on the show. You mentioned Alfred Wegener, Chester Carlson, and Marshall and Warren in the 80s. My favorite story, the Marshall and Warren story is, is my favorite, I think, when we talk about the resistance to new ideas. The doctors Marshall and Warren were Australian physicians who in the 1980s began to believe that the conventional wisdom in the field of medicine about the cause of stomach ulcers was incorrect. Uh, of course, the traditional belief system was that ulcers were caused by stress. And this was very disconcerting for physicians around the world because they didn't really have a, an available treatment. They had to try to convince people to change their lifestyle to reduce stress. And we know how difficult that can be. But these doctors began to believe that, in fact, a certain strand of bacteria was infecting the stomach lining of patients causing ulcers. If they were correct, this was really promising because we could treat ulcers with antibiotics. But they went to medical conferences and began to present their findings. And one of them said it was as if they were telling people the world was flat. They were ridiculed. They could not get people to come around to their point of view. And they had a hard time proving their point of view. And finally, they did something amazingly radical, but ingenious. They conducted a self-experiment. They extracted the particular strand of bacteria from a sick patient's stomach. They basically made themselves a cocktail and drank it and infected themselves, gave themselves, gave one of them gave himself an ulcer, treated himself and cured himself, and they went on to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. But I just use that as an example of the great lengths they had to go to to be able to overcome the resistance to new ideas. And what happened there is a common trend we see, which is that experts in a field can become dogmatic and close-minded over time. And they simply lose some of the intellectual curiosity that they had at the outset of their careers. And because they fail to question certain assumptions that they've made historically, they aren't listening to those new voices. And Marshall and Warren, great example of the lengths they had to go to to overcome the close-mindedness of experts. And I love how you put this. Today's experts reject tomorrow's creative geniuses. Conventional wisdom, preconceived notions, and cognitive biases blind the experts from recognizing the merits of bold new ideas. And regarding the rejection of ideas, let's share Victor Otati's earned dogmatism effect, seen as you mentioned that there, in essence, people become more close-minded when they perceive themselves as experts. Yeah, and the best part of that research is it's not just if they are experts, 
It's just if they perceive themselves to be experts, even if they may not have the relevant knowledge and expertise in a particular field, but if they perceive themselves to have expertise, they can grow close-minded. That's really a stunning finding and a reminder to us all of sort of uh, the challenge that we face, that we have to be able to look in the mirror and really be true to what do we know for certain and what are we assuming, presuming that we know. And can we explore that a little bit then, Michael? Well, so what Otati did, which was, I think, rather ingenious, is that he essentially created a set of questions, asked them to people, and convinced some of the test takers that they were brilliant, essentially, even if they weren't, and compared it to people who did less effectively on this test. And what he saw was that people who were basically fooled into thinking they were incredibly intelligent on this test and knowledgeable uh, became close-minded, even if they actually, in reality, had not done that well on the test. So fooling people into thinking that they are experts could cause them to be close-minded without actually they truthfully having that underlying expertise. And that's a pretty incredible finding. Yeah, and you mentioned also Thomas Kuhn, the father of the paradigm shift, and how he found that drivers of a paradigm shift are often newcomers to an industry or a sector and oblivious to the ways things used to be done. And I really related to this because I've always been a newcomer to the fields in which I've worked. And I always believed that I enjoyed the work and I innovated in the work because I was new to it. I didn't grow up in the way things were done around here. Exactly. And often it's somebody from a related field. So they do have some relevant knowledge, right? They're not, you know, a heart surgeon innovating an aircraft engine and typically not that, but it is someone who's in a field that's somewhat related, you know, adjacent, but who can bring that fresh perspective because they're not too ingrained in that particular narrow domain. That's Kuhn's argument, the power of being able to come from that outside perspective and, and bring the knowledge you have, but also the fresh vantage point. And that often leads to those breakthrough ideas. And can we look at an example of maybe one of those type of businesses and new person coming there and exploring it and shifting the paradigm? I think we see that, you know, so often in, in a lot of these businesses or industries where you wonder, well, why didn't the people already in the industry come up with that innovation? Why did it take an entrant to come in from outside to really shake things up? I mean, why did it take Reed Hastings founding Netflix to shake up the video rental market and ultimately to bring us streaming and the like. You know, why wasn't it the people at Blockbuster who were able to do that, uh, for example? Or why did it take Jeff Bezos, who came from the finance world, rather than the people who are dominant in the retail space, the Macy's and the Sears of the world? The example of Uber. Here we have the founders there coming in and overturning the taxi industry. Again, outsiders um, who basically, out of the need of running a business, really saw the pain points of using taxis and um, basically said, wouldn't it be great for our business if we had a better car service? And from that, they ended up becoming the founders of a car service that really upended the entire industry. And you mentioned earlier on the double talk of creativity. So leaders create an environment where people with new ideas fear speaking up because rewards and incentive systems focus on efficiency and productivity and they discourage learning and exploration. However, these leaders proclaim a need for creativity and innovation. This happened to me also as a head of innovation in a legacy organization where they wanted change, but they weren't actually prepared to change. And when they were faced with the bald-faced facts of what needed to be done, 
they were more comfortable rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic than actually changing to a new ship or looking for some new uncharted waters. You know, they say that many times incumbent firms struggle with innovation because they've made historical commitments that are rigid, you know, financial commitments, infrastructure commitments, technology commitments that they cannot change. But I often think, in fact, the most significant rigidity that they face is, is in fact, the mental model they have of the business. You know, I, I, I like to give the example of British Airways and why they struggled so much to cope with the threat of the low-cost airlines in Europe. Why did Ryanair, this poorly funded upstart Irish airline, come in and overturn the entire European airline industry? And part of the argument can be made that it's because British Airways had made some historical commitments to uh, a fleet of planes, to um, a relationship with its customers where customers expected first-class service and other things. Part of it was commitments they made to certain airports like Heathrow and union contracts. But even deeper than that, it was the mindset that they had about what it meant to run a company that offered air travel. And being able to shake that mindset was very difficult. And Michael O'Leary, the CEO at Ryanair, always loved to poke fun at British Airways, saying, you know, they simply cannot bring themselves to do what I do, to have the lack of assigned seats, to have the the lack of a jet bridge and to do the kinds of things we did, the ultra frugal model, it simply, it wasn't in their wheelhouse and they couldn't because they've been running a, an airline the way they have champagne and caviar essentially for, for decades, right? In the beginning, they'll never do it. The mental model's too rigid. Yeah. I'd still avoid Ryanair at all costs. They love it because right? it gets them there cheap. A message now from our sponsors. <laughs> I was plugging a particular company, obviously. So. <laughs> I try to avoid it, honestly, at all costs. It's just not pleasant. But uh, one thing we said is oftentimes organizational leaders think they need new people. So they they say, we need new people. I wish we didn't have these people. We need to bring in newcomers, et cetera, et cetera. And you say this, and I love the way you build the idea is that it's not a people problem they have, it's a situation problem. Yeah, it's so easy to say, if only we had the talent that Netflix and Apple and Google had, we would be innovative. I mean, that is a very simple argument to make, right? Because it's just go out and hire better people. It's a fundamentally flawed argument in so many ways. Uh, we know, not just from our experience uh, that I've had with research and consulting in a variety of industries, that there's plenty of talented people in many of these organizations who, who feel suppressed in many ways. But we also know it from underlying social psychological research that shows that you know the, the power of the situation, the power of environment can be dramatic on our behavior. And and so that's the argument I make. I basically argue, argue that it's an environment problem within these companies, a culture problem, a structure problem, uh, more so than it is a people problem. But that's much harder to acknowledge if you're the leader, right? Because if it's a people problem, it's a simple solution. You have to go hire better people. If it's an environment problem, a situation problem, that is a much more complex obstacle to overcome. And also it means looking in the mirror because who's created the environment that perhaps is somewhat dysfunctional, well, leaders have to be able to look in the mirror and acknowledge they're part of the problem. That's a difficult thing for them to do. So it's much easier and more comfortable to believe it's a people problem. 
one thing I mentioned there was the fear of speaking up. And, you know, when you're a change maker within an organization or an entrepreneur or somebody just working in the, the corporation that just has a good idea, you run the gauntlet when you decide to embrace your authentic self and you run the risk of being labeled a misfit or somebody that's just not a linear thinker, just doesn't get the job done when you're trying to bring new ideas and force them through. And that you, you usually face a penalty of some sort. And you mentioned the work of Jennifer Mueller here, and I thought this would be really interesting to share. So she's done some incredible work on creativity. And what she has found in her work is that essentially creative individuals face a penalty within organizations that people essentially, while they say that they value those kinds of individuals who are, quote, out-of-the-box thinkers, in fact, they feel rather ambivalent about them. As often as they might call them visionary or path-breaking, they might also label them with words like quirky and unfocused and nonconformist. And so she says, this is really an interesting challenge for people. You're putting yourself out there when you are a, quote, out-of-the-box thinker. And you may, in fact, hurt your career in some instances because people, well, they only want out-of-the-box thinking to a certain point, right? And then they go, hmm, you know, I wish Mike would just kind of go along with the way we do things around here. You know, that would be a lot easier. He asks too many questions, right? And that tipping point is a risk for many creative individuals and organizations. When is it that I've pushed to the point where people go, you know, kind of tired of hearing about Mike's new ideas. And you get labeled as a naysayer because you're saying, actually, we need to do something about this or a chicken little, the sky has fallen down, when you're actually a gainsayer. And oftentimes it's a communication problem as well, but mostly it's just they don't, just don't want to know about it. And it's, let, let's just be quiet about the elephant in the room. The other thing that happens, I, you know, I, Bob McKim uh, was a creativity researcher at Stanford for many years. I've adopted an exercise that he once used I've used it now with thousands of executives around the globe over the last two years. And what he does is have people turn and he gives them 60 seconds to draw a sketch of their neighbor in whatever room they're in. And I've done this. I say, turn to your neighbor and I'll give you 60 seconds, draw a sketch. And then at the end of 60 seconds, I ask them to show the person the sketch they've drawn. Two things happen. First thing happens is when I give people the task, there's amazing trepidation in the room. Right? People are really nervous about drawing a sketch. And then when I ask them to show their neighbor, immediately the first thing I hear buzzing around the room is, I'm really sorry, right? There's the <laughs> apology. If you compare that to children who do the same task, they tackle it with courage and conviction. They're proud to show their drawings. So something happens to us as we become adults where we become really concerned about how others will judge our ideas and our work. And therefore, often as adults, in the workplace, we censor ourselves. We look and we go, I'm not sure how people will judge this idea. So we actually never share it. And that's an incredible barrier to creativity and innovation. The self-censorship that's going on all the time in, in many organizations. One of my favorite parts of my day is at nighttime. So I'll, I'll sit with my kids in bed and my younger son's six. You know the way you collect these notebooks as you're running events or you're at an event and you'll get these nice moleskin uh, books. And I give them to my kids and I say, write your ideas there. So, and they love doing this. And my younger son, Jake, six, and I was lying in bed beside him reading your book, reading about this. 
And I saw him and he was drawing his pictures, drawing his ideas. And I said, Jake, draw a picture of dad. And straight away, I, I saw it, this live. He draws straight away. He doesn't even think about it. Draws it and he, go, and he turns to me and, and he doesn't apologize. Like, he said, here you go. And I was like, that's brilliant. Well done. And then I was thinking how relevant this is in the world that people are so fearful to get their ideas rejected because we pick up this idea of judgment as we get older. And, you know, Picasso once said, every child begins as an artist. The problem is how to keep them artists, you know, and I'm botching the quote a little bit, but that's essentially the, the thought, right? That somehow we drive it out of us, you know, um, and it's, it's problematic in, in so many ways. And so, but what that means for leaders is that means you've really got to go that extra mile to encourage people to make it safe for people to come forward with their ideas. You have to recognize that there is this internal inhibition that people have. So you as a leader have to make them comfortable with coming out with those original ideas, welcome them, even if they're not perfect, right? It's okay, uh, but make it safe. So Michael, you mentioned six creativity inhibiting mindsets in the book. We're not gonna get through them all today. I highly recommend people buy this book. It's really enjoyable, really well-written, and they did a great job. But let's start with linear mindset. The linear mindset really is this notion that, you know, we're trained as managers in many ways to be linear thinkers to analyze a problem, to conduct research, to come up with a plan, and then to take action, to execute that plan. It's a very linear process. It uh, underlies many management systems, such as strategic planning systems in organizations. The problem, of course, is that when it comes to really original ideas, uh, this linear model, going from analysis and research to planning and execution, doesn't work because it's predicated on our, our ability to project accurately how things are going to unfold, how our competitors will react, how our customers will react. For many original ideas, what we really need is a much more iterative process where we test and experiment. It's a nonlinear way of thinking that's required where we put our idea out there, we prototype a bit, we test, we gather feedback, and we iterate. Most organizations aren't comfortable with that kind of nonlinear thinking. More so than even that, the problem is that, again, going to our the human psychology here, we don't really like iterating. Iterating is a tough thing to do. It means being willing to shed our old ideas, being willing to take the initial solution we have and say, hmm, the feedback we've gotten has, isn't very positive. Maybe we need to discard it and move on to another idea. We as humans have a hard time doing that. There are certain cognitive biases that get in the way. One of them is the sunk cost trap. The more we invest into something, the more we have a hard time cutting our losses. And in fact, we double down. We become overly committed to that initial solution. We throw good money after bad. We're also vulnerable because of the confirmation bias effect. We tend to look for feedback that will confirm what we already believe, that our idea is wonderful. And we avoid disconfirming evidence or feedback. So we do a number of things. So. One of the things that we found in a lot of our work is that this really, this idea of iteration is so crucial to the creative process, the willingness to test and experiment quickly and inexpensively. But the problem with that is that we have to be willing to shed ideas that aren't working and not just make small incremental changes based on feedback from customers, but sometimes to move on to an entirely different idea. We don't like doing that. Essentially, I always say we hate to iterate as humans in many instances. And this is a fundamental barrier to the creative process. 
let's talk about some of the champions of iteration. And one of them you mentioned in the book is Leonardo da Vinci and how he tested his hypothesis of the aortic valve, for example, in the heart using prototyping. He was one of the original design thinkers. He really was. You know, I was inspired by Leonardo many, many years ago as a child. My, my parents from Italy and I would go back to visit my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, etc. And, and my uncle who lived outside of Florence would live just near where uh, Leonardo grew up. And he took me to his home place. And there there's a small museum. I was always fascinated by this man who lived so many centuries ago and who was not just a great artist, but also just a pioneer in so many fields. And when I dug into it, I realized he really was one of the early design thinkers. He really embraced this idea of prototyping and experimentation. His work was never done. Now, Leonardo had the opposite problem. You know, Steve Jobs once said, you know, real artists ship, you know, eventually you got to stop trying to perfect it. You actually have to ship the product out. Leonardo wasn't very good at that. In fact, most of his work was unfinished at the time of his death. He just was the constant tinkerer. And so we don't, we can't be Leonardo in the business world. We do have to eventually ship, but we can embrace a little more of his nonlinear thinking and his willingness to never simply fall in love with his original idea and stick to it, but really be open to the idea of changing it, improving it over time. So a little more Leonardo could be really helpful to most of us. You know, there's a great saying in the design thinking community that what we really want to do is fall in love with the problem, not our initial solution. This is key to the creative process. But as humans, we're vulnerable to falling in love with our initial solution. In fact, we prematurely converge often on a solution before we even fully understand the nature of the problem we're trying to solve. So that was Leonardo. Call him the prototype for the prototyping. But bringing it to modern days are pretty much Karen Hansen, who worked in Intuit. She rolled out design thinking throughout an organization. So it is actually possible and it can lead to dramatic results. Yes. Yeah, so we've seen a number of major corporations try to embrace design thinking, which design thinking is essentially a, a methodology for creative problem solving that's premised on the notion that experimentation and prototyping is crucial to being able to deliver innovation. The notion at IDEO, one of the leading product design firms, is that you, you build to think, right? That you don't just sit and ponder, but you build to think, right? And that through that process of mocking up your ideas, they get better. And whether it's Intuit or IBM or other companies, we've seen a lot of firms invest a great deal in design thinking. What's interesting is I've also seen many organizations struggle mightily. And my argument is it's because they, they look at design thinking, this wonderful methodology. And, you know, the way it's taught is it's taught as a, a stage process. You know, there are five stages. We move from empathy and understanding of the, the users all the way through testing our ideas and implementing them. And unfortunately, corporations have often looked at that and said, oh, it's a five-step process. I follow the steps. I get an innovation. But it's not a linear process. When you look at how it's actually practiced by the best designers out there, it's a much more iterative process, whereas they're constantly looping back, doing more research with users, uh, adding a little more brainstorming, you know, and that ability to go back and forth through the different stages of the creative process is crucial. Many corporations have invested a lot of money in trying to embrace design thinking, and they haven't been as successful as Intuit or IBM has, has been able to achieve because they've adopted it, the same kind of linear thinking that they do traditional strategic planning. And one of the worst things I've seen is when an organization puts lipstick on a pig, so to speak, so crudely to speak, where they go, okay, well, let's 
show some innovation here and bring in design thinking experts and run experiments. And they promise then prototyping. And then they actually leave it at that. And they don't follow through and they don't fund the idea, even though if they have a gem there waiting to be released into the wild, but they don't do and they don't follow through. And then actually they make things worse for the organization and they add to the problems because the people go, well, we're never going to change because you won't support the change. I think what happens, you're absolutely correct. I've seen this so many times, these amazing high energy workshops, you get people all excited and then nothing happens. Before you run the workshops, you need to think carefully about what are you going to do with the output of that workshop. And if you haven't thought that through, don't hold the workshop because you're going to, as you say, do more harm than good. You know, my, I really believe just like doctors pledge to first do no harm, managers need to do the same thing, right? And don't erode the trust of your people by holding a workshop, getting them all excited, and then not being willing to do something with their ideas. And you mentioned earlier on some cost trap, but there's other ones here. There's other huge challenge that mental blockers, for example, and one of them you mentioned is fundamental attribution error. And the other is confirmation seeking behavior, not confirmation bias, so to speak, but confirmation seeking behavior that is everywhere in organizations. Yes. So, you know, confirmation seeking behavior, meaning not only do we look for evidence that confirms what we already believe, we also surround ourselves with people who are going to tell us what we want to hear um, in many ways. And then, of course, the attribution error, in order to learn effectively from feedback, right, we have to be willing to understand cause and effect accurately. And our problem, the attribution error says, you know, when others fail, we're very welcoming uh, of the idea that, well, there's, there's things that they did incorrectly, right? Internal attributes of those individuals that led them to fail. But when we encounter failure, when we get negative feedback, unfortunately, we often look outside of ourselves and we blame the external environment or conditions or circumstance for the failure rather than accepting that we might have made mistakes that they're, you know, and so that attribution error, the fact that we're not willing to look internally, that we're too easily willing to blame external factors for why our ideas aren't working leads us to not learn effectively and therefore not improve effectively in the iterative process. Let's move to an, another one here, a mindset that blocks, which is the benchmarking mindset and herd behavior. And here you start with a brilliant example, which I remember as a kid, which was Dallas, and the other one, which was Survivor, to name but two of 975 US TV shows that were analyzed. I thought this was a fascinating study. So I dug into this study um, by Robert Kennedy, who uh, had been a professor of mine years ago, and uh, he collected data on three decades of broadcast network television shows in the United States. And he sees this incredible pattern that we've seen play out time and again, which is that there's sort of waves of herd behavior in Hollywood. And so I start with the example of in the mid-1960s, uh, comedies, westerns, and variety shows dominated American television in prime time. And, uh, and there were virtually no police dramas on television. And then in the late 1960s, a few surprise hits, police dramas emerged, one of them the original Hawaii Five-O. And then what happened amazingly, within just a very short period of time, almost a third of the primetime schedule was police dramas, Kojak, Policewoman, Starsky and Hutch, uh, Beretta, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 1977, CBS premieres a show about a a sleazy oil tycoon and his dysfunctional family on a ranch in Texas. The show was Dallas, the star named J.R. Ewing. And uh, the primetime soap opera suddenly becomes 
the genre of interest. Amazing the numbers of copycats and the police drama falls off. We see the same thing when Survivor came along in 2000. They spawn an enormous number of imitators in reality television, most of which were flops, only a few of which were hits. And I attribute this herd behavior in part to uh, the benchmarking mindset. We spend an incredible amount of time, energy, and money in organizations benchmarking our rivals, our competitors. And of course, it is important that we understand how we're doing relative to the competition. But unfortunately, what I've found in my work is that too often benchmarking leads to imitation rather than learning and adaptation. So we end up emulating our competitors very directly as opposed to saying, okay, now that we've learned what they do better than us, how are we going to embrace a different way of doing business, a unique way to establish competitive advantage, to create a distinctive position on the market, not a copycat position. But unfortunately, too often benchmarking leads to copycat behavior. Yeah, and there's a lovely line here that you say in the book, which is, rather than leveraging employee creativity to forge a distinctive path, firms choose to emulate the rival's product offerings and competitive positioning as head-to-head -head competition increase, increases, profits tend to decline. And then they call in the consultants. Many of them are young, have no scar tissue of actual real-world industry experience, and the actual gems, the ideas, falling in love with the problem, as you said, that all lies within the organization. And you just need to, as you say, as the book is called, unlock that and release it. And that's where the gold lies. And, you know, it's it's not that you're not going to study the competition. I mean, I love to do this, you know, the executives, I, I love to do this thing where I, I play Shark Tank with them and I say, you know, you're the investors and I'm pitching a business to you. Imagine a grocery store that has no branded goods, nothing's ever on sale. There's no loyalty card or coupons. There's no self-checkout lane. There's no large wide aisles or big parking lots. There's no television ads. You know, would you invest in my business? And of course they scoff and go, what an absurd grocery store. And I reveal to them that the grocery store is Trader Joe's, a uh, subsidiary of the German giant Aldi. And it's one of the most successful grocery stores on earth. Joe Colomb, the founder of Trader Joe's, he definitely, definitely studied his competition. But look, he didn't go and say, let me build something that looks just like that. It's a low margin, tough business, the grocery business. What he said is, what if I built a different kind of grocery store, almost the anti-supermarket, if you will. And we all know what happened. He built something so unique that it created a cult-like following that continues to this day, more than 50 years later. This is important that you need to look beyond the direct competition. The way I articulate this is you don't copy best practices, you copy best principles. So you look for the gems in other industries that are somewhat adjacent or somewhat overlapping. An example I heard recently was that looking at your competition as something differently. So Netflix CEO Reed Hastings recently said that Netflix is not competing with HBO or YouTube. It's competing with the human need to sleep. And this brings us to substitution threats. And I'd love if you'd share the table of substitution threats that you list in the book. Yes. Yeah, so I think the key when we think about competition is, remember, you're not just competing against the company making the same product that you're making. You're or offering the same service. You're competing against substitutes, alternative products and services that fulfill a similar human need. So if you're a chewing gum manufacturer, you're competing with Amazon. Why? Because the more people online shop, the less they're standing in a line at the grocery store and buying that impulse 
chewing gum package, you know, making that impulse purchase. So my goodness, the more people online shop, the less opportunity for impulse purchases of gum. Or if you're uh, in the luggage cart business, uh, Airbnb is a big threat because if people aren't going to hotels, they don't need luggage carts. If you're in the fine china business, my goodness, the more people on their wedding registry ask for travel experiences to be funded and less for goods like kitchenware and fine china, you have trouble. I just love these examples and I try to remind executives, you know, often the most serious threat doesn't come from the people making the same thing you make. It comes from people who displace the need for the product itself. And so understanding that benchmarking has to be much broader is so important for the creative process. You mentioned Ryanair and, and British Airways earlier on, and corporate travel is makes up a huge amount of travel and the, the, the better seats as well in travel and the executive lounges, etc. But as VR and as, you know, internet speed, 5G gets rolled out and things get better, technology will replace the need to travel. So you won't have these needs to be traveling overseas, et cetera, to do the meetings when technology will actually displace them. That's one that really dawned on me through reading that list. 20 years ago, when I started as a professor, um, all of the work I did with corporations in leadership development was all getting on a plane and flying there. Today, I do somewhere between 20 and 30 webinars per year with clients. I still travel. But uh, that's that's a lot of work being done using various technologies to deliver content interactively with people looking to develop their skills. You were mentioning imitation here, and sometimes imitation super, supersedes inspiration for many of us. And humans experience a fixation when trying to follow, solve a problem, like you said earlier on. But I thought here we'd mention the famous Lukens test and Janssen and Smith's design fixation tests. Yes. Yeah, so... Again, in each case, when I look at these mindsets, I try to understand what's the underlying psychological barrier. And in the case of benchmarking, I'm trying to understand why does benchmarking lead to imitation, right? Why? Why doesn't it lead to, you know, newer ideas in so many cases? And I hear go to the principle in psychology of fixation. And what Lukens found in his uh, famous water jar experiments as as people tried to solve a series of problems is that. If a particular methodology works to solve a problem, the first few problems he gives people, that people can become locked into that methodology. And then when given other problems, right, they continue to try to use the algorithm that worked for them in the past. They become fixated on it, even if there is a different and an easier way to solve the problem. And so this has been shown in other studies by Jansen and Smith and others where they ask people to design engineers to design new products. And so they'll ask people, for example, design a new bicycle rack for automobiles. And the people given a blank sheet of paper do much better than those who are shown some prior designs of bike racks. Even if those rack designs were flawed, the engineers simply fixate on that particular type of rack. And while they make improvements to it, they're really not creatively addressing what are, you know, is there another way to actually carry a bike on a car, a better way? Instead, they're tweaking the existing model. That's what fixation is, you know. Uh, and so it's a really difficult. In fact, one of the most incredible experiments they do is where they find that even if they tell engineers with a particular product, here are some of the flaws in past designs, you might want to avoid them. Engineers just can't help but incorporate some of those same elements 
uh, in the design, trying to tweak them and make them better rather than eliminating those design elements completely and finding a different way. And I love the way the concepts overlap in the book, because that overlaps so great with, you know, the childlike curiosity overlaps so great with the newcomer to an industry that doesn't come with preconceived notions, because it's that and I love the way you do this in the book, you show the human psychological blockers. And, and you know, I thought about this, so many people in organizations, me included in the past, will blame leadership. So you blame leadership for getting too fixated with the status quo, but you got to empathize with leadership sometimes. And by following the status quo or following the best practices within an industry, there's less risk of being fired or by bringing in consultants who give you the same advice as they do with somebody else in the same field. It's almost like more of an insurance policy than an actual consultation policy, because they're just giving you information. And then you can blame the consultants and go, well, you know, the consultants told us to do that. And it leads to better job security than being the change maker, even though you could lead to millions of new revenue or billions of new revenue. But that is risky. Absolutely. I mean, you don't lose your job by being average. And that's just the bottom line, right? If, you, if you're performing roughly at the average in your industry, you probably don't lose your job. If you try to launch something creative and original, high risk, high return. And for many managers, that that's a perilous path. They worry about what might happen if they end up in the, the high risk, low return sector. And one of the great examples you give is Reebok versus Nike in the late 1980s. So as an example, a wonderful example of where searching outside, looking at analogies, can help us shake our mindsets and, and be creative. Reebok was trying to compete with the Nike shoe that was dominating the market, had had all of this great success. What do we do about that? You know, the Air Jordan was, you know, just a remarkable success in the late 1980s. And Reebok worked with a, a firm called Design Continuum in Massachusetts, and they found inspiration in several different medical devices that helped them create the Reebok pump shoe. And I find that really pretty incredible that they they looked at something, a device in a, a totally different industry, if you will, that there were a set of devices that gave them inspiration for creating a different kind of shoe that would uh, help athletes perform well. And so, yes, I think that at times, we, and this is just like if you're a hospital and you know, you're trying to have a better inpatient experience, uh, going to the Ritz-Carlton and saying, well, Ritz-Carlton is the you know, does customer service and uh, overnight customer service better than anybody on earth. Let's go learn from them. They're not running a hospital, but they have a, a set of skills and a set of values and a set of managerial systems we might learn from. Yeah, I love that mindset. I love that idea of looking for analogous fields and the best principles that you can find from those fields. Moving on to the prediction mindset, and this is the last one we'll have time for today. You remind us of Alan Kay's line, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And this tees up nicely for the prediction mindset, because here you tell us nobody knows anything. And how we can see this in Hollywood movie performance, for example, I love the story here, and particularly the story of Indiana Jones. So here's what happens. Uh, time and again, I hear in organizations that there's a particular question that gets posed to people with original ideas. And the question is, how big is your idea? The reason that question is posed is in large organizations, essentially management is saying, look, we're not really interested in small ideas. We need ideas that will move the needle because we're a big company, right? And we only have so much attention and so much time that we can devote to projects. 
we want to devote time and energy to projects that can move the needle. Well, what's wrong with that? You know, doesn't that seem logical? The problem with that is that we're presuming that in those early stages of innovation that we can accurately predict how big our idea is. And what I find is that across a number of industries, our ability to predict is really rather abysmal. And I point to what screenwriter William Goldman once said about the movie business. And, you know, he wrote many years ago about the remarkable success of the original Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana Jones movie and how so many studios got it wrong and didn't didn't understand how big a hit that would be. And they turned it down. And he basically says, well, it's because nobody knows anything, you know, in Hollywood. We think we know. But in fact, we're just as likely to have a flop as a hit. We really don't know. And uh, I find that's true in other fields as well. Uh, I use the example in, of American football and the National Football League and the abysmal record that coaches and general managers have at selecting the quarterback in the college draft, the most important position on the field. I find it's essentially a crapshoot. It's a 50-50 proposition whether a top draft pick will be a star or not. I love you say this is the monkey throwing darts at the board. I love this. Uh, yeah, well, so Philip Tetlock uh, – probably is the foremost scholar on the issue of prediction. And uh, what he finds in these amazing studies he's done on the ability of experts to predict the future is that journalists actually coined the phrase. Uh, he said uh, the average expert did about as well as random guessing in many of his studies. And journalists took that to saying that experts were about as good as a dart-throwing chimpanzee, uh, which is a great line. <laughs> this is a great line. This teases up nicely for this because you said humans have a strong desire to create a sense of control. That's a psychological reason we do that. You talk about moving the needle here and how unreasonable growth expectation often means new ideas are stillborn. They don't even appear on the vine. And this is because senior execs are often under pressure for monstrous growth or unreasonable growth. They're not interested in innovations that will take a significant period of growth. Right. So, uh, you know, many years ago, uh, Carol Loomis uh, wrote this article for Fortune magazine called The 15% Delusion. She talked about how so many companies, uh, an extraordinary number of them in the Fortune 500, seem to be targeting 15% growth in earnings per share. Why 15? I don't know. It's just this magic number. But she finds in her analysis, which she published in Fortune, that uh, very few companies actually can sustain 15% growth year after year for many years. It's just a law of large numbers problem. Once you become a fairly large company, being able to continue to maintain that kind of growth is difficult. So what happens is, you know, that's why you're saying, hey, the idea's got to move the needle because you're trying to generate so much new revenue that small ideas just don't seem attractive. The problem is the premise there is that we can distinguish the niche from the blockbuster effectively. And I just don't think we can. In fact, there's an example I've used since I wrote the book that I often use. Uh, it's about a brand called Yeti, uh, Y-E-T-I, many people know. They started out at as a company making these very expensive coolers for fishermen and hunters who would spend several weeks out in the wilderness and need to be able to keep something cold. So they built these, you know, $600 coolers, essentially. It's a very small market initially that they went after. They were going after really avid fishermen and hunters who were not just going away for the weekend, but really going to be gone for a lengthy period of time. And I say, imagine if they were in a large corporation, those entrepreneurs, and they pitched this idea, they would have been asked, how big is your idea? And they would have said, well, the market is, you know, it's a real small niche for this, but we've got a great product. And the managers probably would have said, we don't really care how great the product is. It won't move the needle. 
And then I usually ask executive audiences, how many of you have children and you've bought them a $30 Yeti water bottle? How many of your children actually need a water bottle that will keep ice frozen for seven days? The answer is nobody, but they've created this incredible cult brand, but they could never have predicted that they were going to create that amazing cult brand. They went after a niche. They delighted that niche. And then once you've done that and you build a brand, you can do lots of other things. But the how big is your idea question would have squelched it in many organizations. And as you say in the book, all ideas need time to ripen. But oftentimes we don't do ourselves favors. And that 15% delusion or over promising with the results can kill us. And, and this idea of is when a business, the legacy organization, and maybe you have some type of new change or new innovation coming with it inside growing with inside the legacy organization, and they're forced to predict. And the prediction is just a guess. But then on top of that, the legacy organization tries to force the legacy organization's timelines onto the new idea, and that often breaks it. Right, because it, you basically are making it very difficult for people to engage in that iterative process of experimentation. You, you tend to push toward full-scale rollout because you're looking for the big revenue quickly, when in fact, it's probably a better idea to give that idea a little bit of time to go through several process, several rounds of iteration. But we get pushed to go, you know, we really don't have time for another pilot. Let's go, full-scale roll rollout. You know, and, and then it doesn't deliver to the expectations. You've over-promised and under-delivered, and we pull your funding. And I hear this all the time from companies. Go, I needed to over-promise to get the resources, then as soon as I couldn't deliver to that promise, the resources were taken away and the idea died before I'd really been able to perfect the idea. And, uh, and that is the fundamental challenge I think a lot of original thinkers face is if they if they don't promise, they don't get the money. If they overpromise, they get themselves in trouble. It's a real problem, isn't it? That's such a it's such a shame. I meet these people all the time and they just leave the organization and they're made to feel that they're broken. And it's actually the organization mindset that's actually broken. But we've kind of given a lot of the challenges and a lot of the obstacles that we face. We will only have time now to list the ideas in the chapter that you talk about leader is teacher you list what great teachers and leaders do to ignite curiosity and creativity within an organization i do think that you know what do great teachers do what are some of the things they do first they encourage questions right they encourage people to investigate new areas and opportunities and they don't just say you know look i know all the answers uh, even though they might be experts in a particular area but they encourage what do you want to learn about what strikes you as an area where, you know, we don't know enough? And then they, they let the students answer, right? They don't just feed them the answers. They let them explore and come to the answers, right? If a student gets to the answer on their own, they're much more likely to have learned the topic and understood it than if you give them the answer. And so what do great teachers do? Encourage questions and let students answer. They share failure stories. There's some amazing research that shows if you're teaching science and all you do is tell these historic, heroic stories of everything that went perfect as Einstein and others developed their groundbreaking theories, then in fact, people don't learn as much as compared to if you also tell the story of the obstacles and the hurdles and the failed experiments that those scientists encountered. Why? Because by sharing the stories of failure, not just triumph, you make people realize, well, okay, I'm not Einstein, 
but I can bounce back from my failures, learn from them, right? You understand that this is somewhat achievable, that everyone stumbles in a way. So leaders need to be able to do that and then celebrate mistakes, recognize that it's okay to make mistakes. The question is, are we learning from them? I think you also have to just go over three more behaviors of great teachers, empathizing with your students. And I think being able to empathize with customers, with employees is so important to be able to understand what are their pain points? um, What's getting in the way for them? Being able to stand in the shoes of your customer and of your employee is so important as a leader. And then making them believe is what I say great teachers do. They set incredibly high expectations but then they inspire students to believe they can do it. And I think that's key, right? You have to be able to achieve something that teachers call desirable difficulty. You want a really tough challenge for the student, but it can't be so tough that people throw up their arms and go, I can never do it. It's got to be something they do believe is attainable, right? It's tough, it's stretch, but attainable. And lastly, Perhaps the most important thing we can do in organizations is introduce some novelty. You know, I think what what teachers really do is they recognize that novelty stirs the brain, that bringing new methods, new contexts, new situations to students really is stimulating. And that's what leaders can do as well. We can make sure that, you know, if all you've been doing every day for the last three years is studying X and working on X in your company, that we expose people to Y and Z that we introduce some novelty to their work, the chance to explore a different industry or a different product line, a different part of the organization, that novel experience is often incredibly stimulating of creativity and innovation. So yes, we want people to have narrow domain expertise, be deep in one area, but we also have to get them out of that silo and make sure they get a chance to explore beyond their domain at times because novelty really does stir the brain. And one of the ways they can do this, obviously, is contact you and you run the Bryant University program for innovation. And where can people find out more about that, about your books, et cetera, Michael? So I do have a a website where they can learn a lot more about my teaching, my writing, a lot of the work that I do. It's very simple. It's www.professormichaelroberto.com. And uh, there, there's also a link to a blog that I keep. And of course, you can follow me on social media as well. On Twitter uh, is where I often post and LinkedIn, but Twitter is Michael A. Roberto is my handle there. And I try to pretty regularly uh, post on issues of leadership and creativity and innovation. I hope people will follow and engage. I love to hear comments and questions from people um, as they do their work. My hope is to impact the practice of management. That's why I do what I do. I mean, I love to teach, but I also want to impact practice in the field. And that's really the most uh, gratifying and inspiring thing for me is to see a change happening as a result of the ideas that we work on as scholars and as teachers. Beautiful. Lovely way to finish. And you call that final chapter, Leader as a Teacher. And I'd like to thank you for being a teacher as a leader. Michael Roberto, author of Unlocking Creativity, How to Solve Any Problem and Make the Best Decisions by Shifting Creative Mindsets. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, it's a great opportunity to, to talk about some of my work and hear your thoughts and questions about it. Thank you.